0: Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to participate in our Holy Week events. With Ash Wednesday behind us and Lent upon us, it means that Holy Week will be here soon. If you don't know what Holy Week is, it is the week that Christians remember, the final week of Jesus' earthly life. I read it like this somewhere, Holy Week honors The Week That Changed the World. It begins with Palm Sunday and concludes at Easter. Our church has four important events happening in observance of Holy Week and the works of Jesus it remembers. We'd like you to be a part of all of them. The events are on Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and of course, Easter. All of these events will look different, but I believe each will be valuable expressions of worship and meaningful to your souls. You can participate in our Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter gatherings in person or online. If you're in our area, we'd love for that to be in person. Maundy Thursday is an online only event. I'm not going to explain each of these events here, but instead I want to tell you to go to wilsonville.church slash holy week. Once you're there, click on the images to learn about the events. Again it is wilsonville.church slash holy week. I want to make a special note about Easter. I'm excited about it. It's the first Easter that will feel normal in three years. Can you believe that? We desperately want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with you, and so consider this your invitation to join us. Also, I want you to know that we have an Easter basket filled with some pretty cool stuff for the first 25 people that let us know they are going to attend our Easter service. You can do that by going to Wilsonville.church Easter. That is all I need to let you know right now. But again, make sure you go to Wilsonville.church holyweek Holy Week. I hope you'll do it right now if you can, because I really do want to celebrate Jesus and the final week of his life with you. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon helps you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. 12 years ago when I was diagnosed with MS it was it was a rough time and for those of you that weren't around I went from from a pretty athletic guy had played college baseball just a couple years earlier and then all of a sudden I, I couldn't like run or jump or catch or throw or type or anything and the the worst night uh when the symptoms were just just crazy, like I don't even know what it was, but it was just crazy. I, I was laying in bed, and you know, I just didn't know what was going to happen. And so, I actually got up out of bed, and I, I wrote this "in case I die" note. Uh, and I don't have that. I feel like the eyes said he's going to read it to us, but I don't have that anymore. But but I wrote this "in case I die" note, and I wanted to express to people that were important to me. Uh, some things that I felt were important to say. And today what we look at, I think, is basically that for Jesus. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we're looking at just like the last 24 hours before he's uh, arrested and then killed, and he's having the Last Supper. You know what is the Last Supper, but he's having the Passover meal with his disciples, and he takes that time, too, to tell them a bunch of stuff about uh, about. Things that they need to know after he's dead and gone and no longer, you know, physically with them on Earth anymore. Uh, many people have called it the farewell discourse, and so we've been looking at this farewell discourse, uh, these final words of Jesus. But today we're going to look at the like the last words of Jesus. We're going to cover a pretty big section, but I think that that what makes it really important is this is like what Jesus wanted to say. For his last words. Like, this is the thing that he wants to leave with these men who have been hanging out with him for three years. It's the stuff that he wants to get out before he is no longer physically with them. And it even says in, in our passage, and I'm not going to read this part later, but, uh, but in the midst of these kind of last two chapters, we'll, we'll hit the bullet points today. He says, I have more to say, but I'm out of time here. And so the Holy Spirit's coming. And so this is the stuff. That he really felt like I need to get this in before I can't get it in. This is the, this is what people need to know. My disciples need to know before I'm no longer with them. And he starts with this illustration here in in chapter fifteen. He says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener." Now I brought a plant with us today, and uh, just because I think it's sometimes easier to see. And uh, and basically, you know, this what Jesus is saying is that. I am the, the source of nourishment and life. Like, you just can't find it any, anywhere else. And we all know that these branches uh, that are on this, like, if I, if I pulled one off, if I took it away from the, the main kind of root right there, it, it would no longer live, right? It would have no ability to bear fruit. It would, uh, it would just wither and die. And so Jesus says this thing, you know, that in an agricultural world, like, would have made sense to them all. He's saying... That that all the life and all the sustenance for your energy and for your ability to grow and to produce fruit, as we'll see in a second, it all it all comes from from me. And, and I think that just that idea right there is so valuable. And I think, frankly, as I thought through this kind of giant chunk of scripture, we're going to look at, it's what drives, in some way, everything that's going to follow that apart from jesus we don't have life we don't have spiritual energy we can't grow we can't you know become what we desire to become and, and the reality for for us is i i think that, that this is such an easy idea to forget we we can feel as though everything else creates life within us we we are drawn to things that make us feel alive, but there is only one source for actual life. And in fact, John has already told us that in this book, like he's made that really clear that not only is Jesus the one who created us and gave us life in the first place, but apart from him, there's, there is no life. There is no life now, and there is no life for eternity. And so Jesus is, he's about to go away. He's about to be arrested, killed And then he'll come back to life and he'll ascend into heaven. He needs to get this in and he starts with, don't forget, remember that I am the vine. You need me for life. You have to be connected to me for life. And and then he includes this this other thing, this predicate as it were. Uh, My father is the gardener. And the question is like, what does that even mean? What does it mean that the father is the gardener? And Jesus explains it right after. He says he cuts off branches that don't bear fruit and he prunes the branches that do so that they can produce more fruit. I don't know a lot about plants, but uh, but I do know if you let this thing go crazy, then it's never going to produce the flowers in this case that it's supposed to produce. You have to prune a plant. You have to keep it clean. You got to keep it like, you know, he trimmed up, and, and when that happens, then we can produce more fruit. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, God in heaven, he does two things. He, he, he first of all, cuts away the branches that are not, are not producing fruit. But in the disciples' life, which is, is what we're trying to focus on in this series, he actually prunes away in order that we may bear more fruits. In other words, God strips away things from our lives, in order that we might become more and do more. I hate that. Like, I mean, given the last two years of my life, like, it's encouraging in some way, but I really don't love the idea that God has to take away in order that I can become more and do more. But that is what Jesus is telling us here. And, and I can I can just, frankly, look at our our church and what's happened in the last couple of years and, and, and I, I can take real hope in this, right, because we have been pruned. I mean, we, uh, we, we shrunk in numbers and ministry and so many things. And, and what Jesus is saying here is that, that perhaps God has done that in order that we can produce more fruit. And this is the truth in our lives. I mean, what it appears to say here is that things have to be taken from you in order that you can do and become more. And, and as sometimes I think we look at life and, and man, when, when we lose, often we're just like, God doesn't care. But this passage makes it clear that sometimes when we lose, it, it is actually God's doing in order that we can actually become and produce what God wants us to become and produce in our lives. And so I would look at you and say, first, like in this just this first verse, like you need to be connected to Jesus. And if you stay connected to Jesus, then you need to understand that that sometimes things may be stripped away in order that you can produce the character, uh, become the person that God wants you to become. And so you go, like, okay, well, what do I do? And and Jesus says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. So the command here is that we remain, which in the first half of this chapter, especially, but I think all of it in some way, it's like the the real theme. This word for remain, it appears 12 times in the first 16 verses here. It's often translated as abide. You may have heard it that way. The imagery is of a branch taking its nourishment from, from the root. The language suggests that if we abide in Jesus, then he is going to abide in us. If we remain in Jesus, then he will remain in us. This is where Christian fruit comes from. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, couple of things I would say about that. The absolute key for us becoming what God wants us to become and doing what God wants us to do is that we stay intimately connected to Jesus. That's at the heart of this. And the other thing I would say is that that if we're not intimately connected to Jesus, then there is no chance for us to do those things that I've said, to become and and produce that which God wants us to become and to produce. Now, I'll tell you, I have this. This is one of the hardest things for me personally. I don't believe this, but the way that, that I'm wired is to say, apart from me working really hard, there is no fruit. Apart from me making all the effort at producing fruit, then there is no fruit. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says, apart from remaining in him, abiding in him, there is no fruit. Now, I think there's a place for working hard as a Christian and and striving and making effort, but we must not put the cart before the horse. We must remember that it's remaining in him that allows us to produce fruit. It's remaining in him that will actually make our hard work fruitful and not the other way around. We must remain in Jesus. I think that prayer is a big part of that. We'll see Jesus almost immediately turn his attention to prayer. I think, and I'll talk about this in just a minute, that following his commands is a part of that. I think there's lots of other you know, ways that we remain. But, but it must, I think, as Jesus is about to die, he's like, I'm leaving, here's what you need to know. He, in essence, says, stay as closely connected to me as you can. Stay as closely connected to me as you can. Now, he follows this up by pointing to the threat of hell, and he makes a promise, and that promise is connected to prayer. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But then in verse 8, he says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So first he says, look, you have to remain in me to bear fruit. But then he comes back and he offers us this imperative. He's like, bear fruit. And so again, it does suggest that there is effort required in this, and it should be the goal. One of the goals of our lives should be to bear fruit. And I love what he says here. We bear fruit in order to show ourselves as his disciples. Now if we can't bear fruit without abiding in him then we better take abiding seriously but it should also be the goal of our life to to grow into and to do what God wants us to do that should be the aim of our lives in order that we should we can show ourselves to be Jesus disciples and I I just wonder if we care at all that other people know that we are Jesus followers I wonder if we ever consider if people, just by looking at our lives, if they didn't know that we went to church, right? Because that's kind of the cop-out. People know we go to church often. But if they didn't know we went to church, would there be anything in our lives that suggested to people that we are truly followers of Jesus? And here he says, you bear fruit. We know from other places in the Bible that about fruit, the, the most famous and perhaps the, the most clear is Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is fruit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And Jesus is is saying, he's saying to us, abide in me. That's the only way you can bear fruit. But also you need to want to produce this fruit love and joy and peace and forbearance, and we'll see in a second that we should want fruit that is evangelistic in nature, and it should be all aimed at like following in him in such a way that people can actually recognize that we are his disciples. We're talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus according to Jesus. That's been kind of my heartbeat in this sermon series. And part of what it means to to follow Jesus is to want to live in such a way that people can recognize that we're actually following Jesus. And I would hope that one of your goals in life would be to live in such a way, to be so close to Jesus that you live in such a way that that nobody would be surprised. And in fact, people would just understand this person is different. And and then they would be led to say, why are you different? You say, well, I'm trying to follow Jesus. And they would go, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. And it is all done. It's all done for God's glory. And then in verses 9 through 11, we read, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I think this is incredible, this this opening part. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And we've seen so clearly in this movement through John that we've done over the last several months, this in, this unity between the Father and the Son that... The Father and the Son are one, that if you look at Jesus, then you understand what God is like. I mean, we've seen these statements of unity between the Father and Son over and over and over. It's a perfect unity, a perfect love. And then Jesus now, as he's about to leave, looks at his disciples and says, just as the Father loves me, that's how I love you. I I don't think there's any way that he could have said, spoken about his love that would have demonstrated the amount of love that he has for us, the the perfect love that he has for us better than that statement. Now he's going to demonstrate and illustrate it in a way that I think we can understand better uh, by dying for us on a cross, right? By suffering and dying. But as far as how could Jesus say this in such a way that we could be like, wow, that's real love. He says, "It's it's just like me and the father. That's how I love you. It's perfect there's perfect unity it's like i don't think that there's an illustration that i could give you that would that would connect to that but even if i just said it this way if i said to you i love you as much as my children like you would know that i really really loved you i probably don't <laughs> nah, just kidding but i mean you would know right like wow like that's love, like even the statement, "I love you like my children." And if you know me and how I feel and think about my children, then you would know, like that guy loves me. And Jesus says to remain in that love, and and man, I feel like we could just take that right out of context and say, like you know, like guess about what it means, but He tells us what it means. We we remain in His love by following His commands by following his commands i talked last week about about how this guy listed these 49 commands of jesus and i don't want to uh, go back and listen to that sermon because it's all about following jesus commands but but now he's already told us if you love me follow my commands but the way now to remain in his love is also to follow his commands and so i would submit to you again basically what i submitted last week If you are a Jesus-following person, then you need to figure out what he has commanded you to do, what he has said you need to do, and then you need to make an effort to do it. And I just don't think we do. Write them down, read them, write them down, stick them wherever you look every day, and then do your best. You'll fail, but do your best to just do what Jesus has asked you to do. In verses 12 through 14, he continues with this topic of love. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friend if you do what I command. This is not unfamiliar to us. We've already read basically the same thing in John 13, 24 through 25. A new command, I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Also part of this farewell discourse, Jesus really wants us to love each other. And as we read this, it is an extension. I would say it is at the heart of what it means to bear fruit. We must recognize that he is the vine, that he is the only way for life and sustenance and all of the spiritual energy we need. We remain in him that allows us to produce fruit and at the center of that fruit will always be the love of other people. The call here is to love as though he loved us and he's already described that love. I love you like the father and I love each other. And as I said a minute ago, he's gonna demonstrate that love for these people by going to a cross to die for them. He is willing to suffer the most horrific death for them and for you and for me. And he says, now, we as an extension of that, as we abide in him and his love, following his commands, we in turn love other people like that. We sacrifice for their good. But I'd also point out here this this thing that, I think is so easy to connect to, that Jesus says that if you do this, if you do what I command, then we're friends. Now the point here is not that you become Jesus' friend by doing what he commands. The point is that his friends do what he commands. That's the point here. It's a characteristic of the friends of Jesus is that they are trying to follow him, that they are trying to do what he's called them and commanded of them to do. But it is incredible, this idea, that we could be friends with this person. The book of John was written, if you've been around, this is a a point that I, I hope you have just shoved deep into your heads at this point, but it's written, it tells us in John 20, 31, in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing we may have eternal life. And John has spent the majority of this book writing down all of these things about the incredible character and nature of Jesus and the things that he believes proves it in his eyewitness account. He's told us that Jesus is the word and the word is God. This is God. He's told us that nothing has been created apart from this guy that he hung out with named Jesus. And from there, he extended into showing us all of these signs and these miracles that Jesus did that proves that he is God incarnate, God in flesh. think it would be easy for us to show up and just read right here in the middle of John 15 and go, yeah, this guy named Jesus wants to be my friend. But within the context of all that's been said about what Jesus has done and how that points to who Jesus is, what an incredible idea that he would give me the right and the ability to be his friend if I choose to be his follower. think he doesn't want these people to get arrogant and so he goes you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name the father will give you this is my command love each other he says I chose you that's very true for these disciples right and there's there's debate about what that extends to, a debate centered on kind of the order of chosenness, if you will. I don't care about that today at all. I preached on that last year. Um, I'm pretty straightforward such a way, and you can go back and watch that sermon today. I just want you to recognize this, that if you are a Christian, if you have chosen to follow Jesus, it's because he chose you. That's just a reality in the New Testament, that you are chosen and called by Jesus. And in no way did we just earn our, our way into a relationship with Jesus. So he says, you can be my friends, and if you are my friends, he's not saying you need to question whether or not you can become that, like if I picked you or not. He's just saying, if you are my friends, recognize that you are chosen. You've been chosen, and you have been set apart. And what he makes clear here is that we, the disciples We who are followers of Jesus, we have been set apart for service and to do service that will bear fruit, that will last. This seems to be reflecting the idea of these disciples, and I think as an extension us, being evangelists, leading others into a relationship with Jesus, being the voice that allows for others to be Jesus' friends too. If you have been chosen, then you have been set apart in order that we can together lead others into a relationship with Jesus. You have a role to do, a job to do in that. But what I think happens, and I think, man, this is this is an epidemic in our our modern way of thinking about church. We We look at pastors and Christian leaders and we think they've been set apart. They've been set apart to produce fruit that will last forever. But this is a reality for all disciples. You, if you are Jesus' follower, have been set apart in order to produce fruit that will last for eternity. How do you produce fruit? You remain as close to Jesus as you can and you try your best to follow his commands while you love others. That's what Jesus is saying here. But, but then he, he, he tells us that Within the context that we must pray. We must pray. And I'm going to come back to that later. We must pray in his name. But then he goes on and he says in 18 and 19 If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of, wor- out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now, in the book of John, the world is. It's a big idea. It's not like just earth. It's it's really the system that exists that I think we can sense and feel that is in direct opposition to God. It's the moral order of things that seems to stand in active rebellion to God and the work that he desires to do on this earth. That's the world. Uh, It's not just the planet that we live on. And Jesus here, you know, he says this thing that I think is, man, we, we need to, to pay attention to it because he's telling us that this system that exists, it's going to hate us. And the reality is it's going to pull us, it's going to try to pull us away from him. It's going to try to, to cause us to remove ourselves, frankly, from the vine. That's what the world does. I mean, you just have to turn on the TV, right? Watch any show ever. And you can just sense that this is standing in opposition to me trying to stay close to Jesus. It is rare when you turn on television that you watch a show and you go, wow, that really that really just pushed me to, to get close to Jesus. It, it pushes us further. It pulls us away from him. The, the world seems at times to be set up to... Draw us away from our Savior. He says, the world's going to hate you. It's going to stand in opposition to you. It's going to be attacking you. And it does that because it hates me. Like, that's what Jesus is saying here. And he wants his disciples to not be surprised that the system that seems to exist here is in opposition to everything he has just said. It's not meant to, like, scare you or make you hate everybody or crawl into a corner. But I think we fail to recognize far too often the opposition that exists around us that is pulling us away from Jesus. And I think it's one of the greatest ways that Satan does work in in Christians' lives is, is by making them think that that there is no opposition, there is no spiritual warfare, that Satan is not real and doesn't exist and doesn't want to destroy us. But Jesus in his final words, this farewell discourse, wants to tell his disciples that there is a system out there and it is set up. It is set up to pull you away from him. It is set up to stand in opposition to you doing all of the things that he is saying in this final meal, living for him and following his commands and loving one another and remaining. It's all set up to pull you away from that. Do not be surprised when the world stands in opposition to your faith. And I would say even more, recognize that the world does stand in opposition to your faith. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Jesus does not want people to fall away from him. He wants us to remain and not move away from him. Jesus goes on to say that uh, they're going to be persecuted, and he calls out that they're grieving because he's going to go away. And then he says this incredible thing in verse 7 of chapter 16, But very truly I tell you, it is good for you that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The advocate is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I talked about this quite a bit last week, but I just want to point it out again that here Jesus is saying that somebody's going to come. And what we know from more in Paul's writings is that that, that this Holy Spirit indwells Christians. He comes into the lives of Christians in a way that that I don't understand and I can't parse out. I just believe it. He's with me. He's a part of me. And, and the reference here, the advocate actually means called to one's aid. That's what that Greek phrase kind of translates. And so the Holy Spirit has been, he comes into us in order to help us. Now, I'll say a little bit more about that because Jesus does in just a second. But before I do, I just want to say we need to pay more attention to this. Uh, very dear woman in our church who uh, doesn't attend anymore because she can't drive here. Several years ago, um, I preached on the Holy Spirit, and um, and and she, her family was, uh, they're like, they brought our denomination uh, to the northwest pretty much. And and Janine, after I preached on the Holy Spirit, came up to me and like in the most feisty way, maybe of anything I've ever heard her say. She's like. That's why all of our churches and our denomination are dying because nobody, nobody is talking about the Holy Spirit. I think our point stands for all of us. Maybe we're not abiding in Jesus in the way that we ought to. Maybe we're not producing the fruit that, that we desire. Maybe we aren't growing in the ways that we want to. Maybe we aren't loving each other in the way that we should. Maybe we are not leading others to Jesus in the way that Jesus has called us to because we aren't thinking about or talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He indwells Christians in order to help us do the things that Jesus is talking about here. That's what he says a bit about in the next couple of verses. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes another reference to the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known. The Holy Spirit provides the rest of the truth. What does that mean? And I want to give you two things today that I think that means. First of all, he provides the rest of the New Testament for us. Uh, The New Testament makes clear about itself that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so when you move past Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John about the life of Jesus, there's more to the story, Acts and to the book of Revelation. That was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus has more to say, but his time's almost up. They're not ready to hear it, but we are now ready to hear it, and we can hear what the Holy Spirit has inspired as delivered from Jesus by reading the New Testament. For me, like just that idea, I love that because sometimes it's like I should read the Bible more, you know, like we think like that. And and that's that's not what it is. It's like if you want the rest of the truth in order to follow Jesus better, then you need to read the New Testament. But I also think that what the Holy Spirit does, and this is This is experiential in nature for me, but I think the Holy Spirit fills in the specifics to the general commands that Jesus has given us. And so Jesus says, follow my commands. Do what I've called you to do. And we can look those up and we can read about them. I'll just take the one that's been so central to this passage we're looking at today. Love one another. And some days it's really hard to know exactly what that looks like, right? Like we can't just, I mean, we because love is not a feeling. We've talked about that. Love is is placing others above yourself and then sacrificially serving them. That's really love in the New Testament. That's love that Jesus demonstrates by going to the cross. And so it begs the question: Like, well, I can't do that for every person. Like, I can't make a sacrifice for every person I know today. Like, what, what, what would that even look like, right? And it's not like every day loving someone in action is going to be exactly the same as it was yesterday. And I believe the Holy Spirit, if we will pay attention to the work that he's doing in our lives, he gives us the specifics to the general commands. I just would say to you, like, what if you woke up tomorrow and you said, hey God, hey God, what does it look like for me to love people today? And then the whole day, you spent trying to listen to that inner, still, small voice that I believe is the Holy Spirit's. And when he said, well, do this now, you did it. I don't think we do that. I don't think we give an ear to what the Holy Spirit is saying. And so we look at Jesus' commands and we say, well, he says to love people. And, and what do we actually do with that? Nothing often. We say, well, I love people because I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to. It's like, well, what are you doing that is loving for other people? And I think the Holy Spirit gives us that, and it's all, again, for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. I mentioned earlier, and I just want to touch on it again, that in in the center of all of this, it keeps coming up throughout this farewell discourse is is prayer. And he says, whatever you pray in my name, I'm going to do for you. Now, there's a couple of things that are important there. That's within the context of bearing fruit. And it's also in Jesus' name, which means in the, uh, the what is in line with the character and will of Jesus. It's not like a magic, you know, rub the lamp and you get the genie out and Jesus just does whatever you want. But there is, and so often we say that. This is what bothers me. We say, okay, Jesus says, if you pray, uh, then and it's in my will and in my nature and it's for the purpose of fruit then I'll do whatever you ask. And we go, well, this is, this is, it doesn't mean this. And and then that's where we stop talking about it. Well, it doesn't mean that he just does whatever he wants, but we do have to say, well, what does it mean? I can't, I mean, I think we'll have to ask God that question, you know, to get a very good answer. But but it does mean that we should be praying for, for very real and important things and expecting, expecting, that God is going to respond to those things in a supernatural and powerful way. We can get caught up in what it doesn't mean and and never think about how big of a statement it is. I mean, Jesus is saying here, like, look, if it's in my will, it's in my nature, I will do it for you. I don't know what his will is often. So I should be praying for like everything, just hoping and expecting that that it's going to turn out that way. And, And I wonder again, and I know there's theological nuances here, and I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I just wonder often what isn't happening, what fruit is not being produced because we aren't asking Jesus for things. I mean, he's like, hey, remain in me, and you'll bear fruit, and and remain in my love and love others. And you're chosen and the world hates you, but stand against it. And he didn't say that part, but it's implied. And I didn't want you to fall away in the middle of all of it. You gotta pray. You gotta expect that Jesus is gonna answer in the best and perfect way. I'm gonna skip um. You know, down quite a bit here, and I'm going to read two verses, not in order, but I think it summarizes kind of the last half of of chapter 16, and I say this every time I skip around, but we're covering kind of big sections, Uh, and if you're wondering why is he covering so much and skipping around, um, it's mainly because I wanted to preach about the resurrection on Easter. That felt really appropriate, and uh, I could preach about John for 10 years, and we could just go very slowly, but I try to set you know, what feels like an appropriate time limit. And I wanted to preach on the resurrection on Easter. And so I'm not skipping it because there's like parts in there I don't like or anything like that. But I would say go read. Go read John 15 and 16 and 14 too. John 14, 15, and 16 if you haven't. And think about it through the lens of like these are Jesus' final words to the people he was closest to while he lived on earth. And as an extension of that, they're great final words for you. But I wanna read verses 22 and 33 because I think they're so important to what's at the heart of all this, being a disciple. He says this, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And then in verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I love, I love those because he ends on these incredibly important and encouraging and inspiring and hopeful kind of notes, right? I I mean, he says first, these guys are going to look at his death, right? Like, they're going to see him arrested and tortured and killed. They're going to know where he's buried. He's like, I want you to know that after that, there's going to be such joy that nobody will take it from you. And I would say to you, as you follow Jesus, there can be times when it's so frustrating. Like you don't feel like you're doing very good at being close to him. And you're like, am I actually remaining? And where's the fruit? And am I really loving others? And man, the world really is against me and I hate it, you know. But the resurrection that we'll celebrate in five weeks, it should be it should bring you joy that nobody can take from you, that nothing can overcome. And then as Jesus finishes, he kind of tells us why. Take heart. Why? Because I've overcome the world. I've overcome this thing that stands in opposition to all that I have called you to do and be here. Like Jesus saying, if you're going to be my disciple, remain in me because I'm the true vine. You can't find life anywhere else. I want to see that fruit. Part of that fruit is loving other people because I've chosen you and called you to bear fruit that also leads others to me and closer to me. But the world will stand against you, will pull you away from me. I'll send the Holy Spirit, but even then it's going to be really hard. But know this, you can still have joy because I've overcome it already. I think what we feel like so often is like, if I could just overcome, if I could just fix myself, if I could, you know, be a little better, and and Jesus doesn't end on that note. He calls you to some big things here, and I would say, don't just be like, oh, Jesus overcame. I'm not going to make any effort at all of that. The reality is because Jesus is overcome, we should make an effort at all of that. But we shouldn't be discouraged when we fall short or fail or struggle along in this life. We should still have incredible joy because what Jesus did in the resurrection has has given us victory through his victory. I just, man, for, for me, I think that we, the, the more we forget about the resurrection in Christian, our Christian lives, the, the less we will do any of this. And we're kind of guilty about that, I think, in our, our Christian world today. Like, we think a lot about Jesus' death, and we sing about Jesus' resurrection once a year. Uh, but Jesus wants us to know that that brings such joy, and, and that was how he overcame. And so to try again, I wanna I wanna try to put it all together. Um, it's kind of a it's kind of a funny sermon to write because it was such a big section. And I was looking at it and I was thinking, this feels like one of those sermons where I would just work really, really, really hard to try to get some fruit out of it. But it's right there that um, I need to just ask Jesus and hope it works out. But I'm gonna try to put it all together for you and. We need to recognize that Jesus is the source of life. Stop looking for sustenance and happiness and fulfillment anywhere else. You won't find it. And then when you do recognize that, do your best to stay as closely connected to him as possible. And if you'll do that, he will produce fruit in you. He's going to produce fruit. Part of that fruit will be the way you live your life and part of that fruit will be the things that he does through you. And at the center, I think of both of those things. What he does in us and what he does through us is love because it is the greatest commandment, as he tells us elsewhere. We will love others. And we do it all recognizing that we have been chosen by him for a great purpose, a purpose that the world stands in absolute opposition towards. He does not want us to fall away, but instead, He sends the Holy Spirit in order to help us in the midst of the struggle that is this life and this effort to live as his disciples. And when we fail and struggle along, we must remember that his resurrection has given us a joy that nobody can take, even our own failings, because he has overcome all that we are trying to overcome. And so I hope, man, I hope, that as we look at these final words of Jesus, that you would, that you would pay attention to them, and you would do your best to stay as close to Jesus as you can. Let me pray that you will, Lord. There's a lot in this, and I tried to put it together in uh, some kind of sequential, logical way for the purpose of this sermon. But I, you know, it's right here, Lord. It doesn't matter how well I communicate. It doesn't matter. Um, frankly, you know, the mic got messed up at the beginning or uh, that I said things in a clear manner. What matters, Lord, is that you work in such a way to produce fruit through these words that I have said. And so I'm asking you now, Jesus, that you would take my efforts today and you, God, would speak to the hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be an advocate in each and every person, God, who is... Here today, those watching online, and, and you, would, you would call people to something different and better in their lives. And it's my hope for every person, Lord, uh, that they would either choose to give themselves to you because they recognize that there is life nowhere else and that, that they need your love and all that it offers. Or, God, for people who have already done that, who are Christians, I pray that you would help us to take a step forward because of what we've seen here in your farewell discourse, we would take a step forward, God, in our effort, ability, willingness to follow hard after you. We've sang that, God, so many times in the last few weeks. Um, Give us one pure and holy passion. And I pray that you would give us one pure and holy passion, Lord, and it would be to, to be as close to you as possible. And I pray as we, God, have that passion that you would work powerfully through us and you would produce, God, in us and through us incredibly remarkable fruit. I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.